Welcome to the Not Old Yet podcast, where we explore the subject of aging from a fresh new perspective. Each week, you will learn how to look, feel, and be youthful, no matter your age or stage of life. Tune in each episode to hear words of wisdom, stories of hope, and keeping it real advice from your host, Elizabeth Vanderveer. We got a beautiful story. Hi, everyone. It's Elizabeth Vanderveer, your host of the Not Old Yet Global Podcast. And I'm here today in beautiful Santa Barbara with a good friend of mine, DC Ray. Hi, DC. Hello. Well, thanks for inviting me. Well, thank you for inviting me to Santa Barbara. This is my first time here, and I am overwhelmed at its beauty and its vibe. And what a great place you've landed in. So, good job. So, DC is here with me today to talk about telling your story. DC is a veteran screenwriter. He comes from somewhat of a Hollywood legacy of filmmakers and screenwriters here. And he himself writes for television and film. And he works for himself and helps others tell their story. He is also an author and an instructor. And today he's going to tell us not only how one can tell their story, but really the importance of telling your story. And he does that in his career as an instructor, helping others learn how to write their story. But right now, we're just going to start by scratching the surface about telling our story, because I think so many of us don't even know where to begin. So welcome and help us out here. Well, thanks a lot. The first thing is that as participants and readers and moviegoers, we all love a good story, which has a beginning, middle, and an end. And most of the stories that most people resonate with are the hero's quest. And you don't have to be a guy or a gal to do this. And it goes back to ancient storytelling from the campfire of the hero goes on a a journey. And these journeys can be physical and metaphysical to find themselves and to improve themselves. And especially if you're older people, you've had an epic story of your own. You've had your life story is an epic. And we all love to watch epics. And what the writing style that I like to teach is the epic journey. And it's probably the easiest first-time screenwriter format to do. Okay, so I have a question. Mm -hmm. I love what you just said, but what if you're... 70, 80 years old, and you feel like you've had a really banal life, like you have nothing to say, nothing, you have no story because you just lived an ordinary life. You worked the same job, you were married to the same person, you didn't have a lot of drama, you kind of just had the usual stuff. So how would you encourage that person to start telling their story? And then of course, I want you to help us tame the wild horses that have, you know, so much to Mm -hmm. say. And then there's the people that are afraid to say what they know. So we'll talk about all of that. But Tell us how one even should start to look at a meaningful story and how can we insert meaning into our own story? Well, the first off is not everybody is a writer. Not everybody has the ability to write their own story or even write a paragraph or a good tweet per se. (laughs) Okay. So let's start with that. You know, it's not for everybody. It's 
for those who were compelled to share a story. And it could be they were a parent and the struggles they had if they had a hyperactive child and all the things that they had to deal with for that. Or they had, uh, they lived in a neighborhood that the other parents weren't supportive of their off the wild child or and all that. We've all had moments in our lives that add up to something. Like even if you had a career, where did that career go? You had a, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end to that career. And that's part of your journey. What was your journey and what do you think are important lessons that you want to share? That's the motivation you need to have as a writer. It, okay, so I have a question for you because I haven't actually seen the whole series. But I, when you talk about a story to tell, I thought of Mad Men. Mm-hmm. because of the story that everyone was telling about the story they were telling. But in the end, what was the lesson or why was that story told? What made it a compelling, besides the individual characters and you know how fabulous certain people and their developments were mm-hmm. on there, but why did we need to go back and hear a story about advertising in that age and I think not for everybody, but for a lot of people, there was a nostalgia for the Mad Men era, which was post-World War II, was in the 1950s when America was number one in economy and prosperity and everything was sunshine. And and advertising really came to its own because television came of its own in that time period. And that's when you had innovative and interesting storytelling 30-second storytelling to sell a product or get people interested in a product and where you had brands were created. So I think there's a great curiosity to relive or see what that life was really like from a nostalgic point of view of the 1950s and 60s of that time period, but not just in advertising, but in business and society. And then, of course, with Peggy Olson, we saw this woman come from just a secretary and become copy editor at a major agency. And her, to me, the Mad Men was not about the main role of Draper. It was about Peggy Olson. It was her story. And to see all the men that were not supportive and supportive of her, that she constantly had to prove herself and she worked hard for that. So to me, that was really what the story was about. I think at the beginning, people didn't realize that, but at the end, you did, it was really about her representing women of that era coming into the workforce as a career, not just as a secretary to come in and then get married and have children and then, you know, be out of the workforce. But she really sacrificed to be where she was. So that's part of that intrigue and that was the story. Was the brilliance of the show the fact that we weren't expecting that story or the fact that they actually addressed it and we got it we learned something that we weren't expecting as well. I mean, was it just that they educated us in an entertainment way? Yes. As a writer, you want to engage your audience. You want to get them to love or hate your characters and wanting or compelled, the audience is compelled to find out what happens next with these characters. And those characters' motivations are and how we can identify with them. Oh, that's just like George or that's just like Pat or it's just like uh, Jimmy or, or Jane. It's people we identify with our own lives and not necessarily in the workplace, but in our own just, you know, everyday thing. It could be neighbors, family members, whatever. So that's what good characters do. The, the backdrop of an ad agency in Manhattan is exciting and wonderful and, and all that, but you still are driven by the characters and what their lives are all about. 
the soul kind of, mm -hmm. of the story. Yeah. And it's well, so, it's a well-written show, it's well-produced, and for myself personally, a, a lot of emotional connection to it. So. Well, another one I think of, which I haven't watched mm -hmm. either, is Downton Abbey, which yeah. seems to take people through a story of unexpected edutainment. Mm -hmm. You know, they learn so much about the era, about the, through the yeah. character development. So talk to us more about your book and how you help others tell their story and maybe some of the aha moments that you've had as an instructor is, is there traps that people routinely get into when they start to tell their story? So I guess maybe do you want to start with people that are trying to do this? So students, you know, in film school or people actually working in the screenwriting mm -hmm. that are experiencing either blocks or problems, or they're just not getting the results that they wanted. The reason people have blocks is they're rushing themselves. They're pushing themselves too fast without being ready. The most important thing I would teach is that you have a solid outline. An outline meaning the name of every scene that you're going to write about. So in screenwriting, we have scene headings in it, like interior, day, office, executive office. And then you describe what that is. And that's the beginning of your outline. That's before you write dialogue or work on characters is you know what your structure of your story is. And structure is the most important thing because the audiences need to be taken on a journey. And to be taken on a journey, they need to know there's a beginning, middle, and end. And that's not just this whole, the whole screenplay, but each scene has a beginning, middle, and end. And once a writer knows what their structure is, for their, then they can go back and start at the beginning again and work on the most important characters. Who are your, your hero and here's your villains? And who are the supporting characters to those heroes and villains? In every epic story, you have that to it. So it's important to think about structure first and then your characters. And the last thing that's done is the dialogue. Okay, so I have a really unusual question I've never asked before. And okay. I, I do a lot of writing, but not for this type of stuff. If someone's writing their own story, are mm -hmm. they writing it in third person singular as an yeah. observer? So they then should. they say, oh, well, DC is in the scene mm -hmm. here doing this. Absolutely. So you, they're disassociating yeah, they from be. themselves to be. write about themselves, right. to it, tell their stories. Yes, absolutely. For first-time writers... Wow, the, I'm, the I'm not sure what to think about that. Yeah. I've never, ever heard that, and I've never written in third mm -hmm. person singular. For first-time screenplay writers, it's best to disassociate yourself from your characters. You can put your personal traits on various characters, not necessarily one character. That's what characters are. They're a mix of ourselves and the different personalities that there are. There's about eight, nine personality traits and all that. So yeah, you do third person and it helps you focus and look at yourself from the outside instead of internalizing. When you internalize, you're just talking inside your head. But when you're externalizing, you're looking from the outside toward yourself, you see things that it's like you know, looking in the mirror. You're looking in the mirror and seeing yourself, who you, the outside world sees you. And when you're writing, you have to think about it from that point of view. If you internalize too much, you'll get stuck. So here's a question. If someone writes an, a memoir or an autobiography mm -hmm. when they're alive, 
and someone else writes the screenplay, is it not inevitable that they would be different because yeah. someone else is looking at it through their lens, right. no matter what? Right. Autobiographies, good ones, are usually written with a ghostwriter or co-written with somebody else because you need that outside perspective. It's difficult to have a well-written autobiography. Those are novels. That's a very different animal than a screenplay. And connecting with books with movies is a good movie takes the essence of a book. It's not a verbatim translation. It is taking the essence. It's taking the atmosphere. It's taking the characters and some of the scenes from those books, but it's translating into a cinematic version, which can be greater or more diminished than the book. Because books are about details and emotions that can't be portrayed in cinema. Can't be? Can't be. What do you mean? Because there's always a comparison and criticism about, oh, the book was better than the screenplay. Yes, of course it was. The books are always better because you're individually reading and you're constructing the movie in your head. Someone hasn't interpreted <laughs> right. it for you. So when you're doing a movie, it's much grandiose and it's more interpretive. And it's also a adaptation in a sense of it. It's, a, it's a, an abridged, like an abridged book like a cliff notes. A movie is the cliff notes of a book. It's just the highlights, all the good stuff. And you can visualize things for the audience in a movie. But when you're reading a book, you're visualizing yourself from your own life experiences. All the things that you've seen and experienced in movies and stories and magazines and everything else, you put all that stuff in your head when you're reading a book and you translate that into the own movie that you see. Okay, so as a scientist of sorts, certainly science curious, would it matter if they were reading the book or hearing the book versus seeing a movie? So the moving images versus auditory only versus reading static words. Is there any difference how you get that input, do you think? I think in my own personal experience is between reading it to myself and listening to the audiobook is a very different experience. Oh, it is. Yeah, I feel like it's listening to a book is listening to a radio play. You know, it's dramatized. If it's done well, audiobooks are like uh, the actor who's reading the book is maybe using different voices for different characters and the way to describe things. So they're acting out or doing a performance versus inside your head of imagining what these characters would sound like. So that's the difference between, I find audiobooks very entertaining, a quick way to get through a book, but I feel like I just see it as entertainment. I don't see it as really changing. When you read a book, it's much more personal experience than listening to the book or watching a movie. Movie is visual, obviously. So, but it's still, you know, you're still acting it out. You have multiple uh, actors acting out all the different characters. So those are three different experiences. Wow. I mean, it just opens up like so many questions that I have about books, but I'm going to digress and just go to what kind of a story would someone, do you think others would want to read? And I know it seems narcissistic to even think about what others want to hear from you. Like mm -hmm. you need to do it for yourself. Yes. But how could someone get their head around a story and then where do they go and how can you help them in particular? Because 
this is what you do is help people with their stories. So I, let's say I, I think, think I have a story yes. to tell. How do we? First, you just tell me your story. You tell me your story. I listen to your story. And I would give you guidelines about how to structure that story, how to put everything in the right place. That would be entertaining for people to experience. Okay, well, what makes for good entertainment that people want to experience? Well, like I said, a structure is important, but also that you have a good conflict. And conflict is not war, necessarily. It can be conflict of opinions. It could be big conflicts, big arguments, or it could be small, like, oh, well, do you think that is green or do you think that's blue? I mean, it's any kind of those because we have conflicts on a day-to-day -day basis and that's what characters are all about. They have conflicts. And when you have a good story, you have different motivations. So let's say you have a hero and you have a villain. Well, they can be interchangeable because the villain has a personal agenda about what they want to achieve and the hero has a personal agenda about what she wants to achieve. And what makes the conflict is their cross conflicts, that their agendas are at, at odds against each other. And that's what makes a good story is how they, and the points of sometimes the villain is the hero in a scene. And sometimes, you know, it's the opposite where the hero fails and then the, the villain succeeds and vice versa. That's what is stories like i'll give you an example of wrote a couple of years ago a movie called justice came out last year that was a traditional western and you had the good guy with the white hat and you had the bad guy with the black hat and and those traditional uh, torp of what what you expect but you'll see the true writers will un show you the motivations and it could be the villains motivations could be good for their perspective Right. You know what I mean? It doesn't, doesn't always, but usually well, you know, yeah, a you, villain is like, they're more on greed and, you know, uh, ego and the hero is usually about self-sacrifice and doing the right thing for society and villains are about greed and selfishness and keeping things seems up. Yeah. So. So if someone is say 65, 70, let's say, yeah. and people keep saying, you have a story to tell. Mm -hmm. You've had a really interesting life. How does one even know where to start? And you mentioned structure and mm -hmm. an outline. And is that something that you just keep drilling down? Like you get your scene set, then you, you said dialogue is last, but does that writer, that same writer that wants to tell their story, do that all themselves? Or do they have ghostwriters or help? With well, you yeah, or? it's always it's always good to have help. As a teacher, I work with somebody. First, they tell me their story, what their story is, and I'll give them feedback about how they should structure their story. The first act, the second act, and the third act of that, what that is. They might have, I mean, they might tell them their entire life story and going, okay, that's interesting, but maybe there was one scene or one inciting event in their life that could be the entire 90-minute movie not necessarily their whole life. It could be just one thing that happened to them or one event that they experienced that could be the, the whole story. It's by listening to them and going, okay, that's the most intriguing, interesting, oh, well, let's talk more about that. So first we have the structure and then of a basic structure of like, okay, this happened and this, and then this happened and this happened and it was resolved. And then you go deeper. When you're working on a structure, 
every time you pass through the outline, it becomes more detailed, more bullet items on each scene. Or each scene has more to add, has more to add. Oh, we have these characters are going to be in that scene. This is just a list. This is just an expand. You're constantly expanding this outline to the point of going, okay, we have a full story here. And then the, the next part is, okay, I need to develop these characters. What are these characters? What are their ages? And what is their educational background? What's their social economic background? What's their sex or gender identification? What are all those things? Okay, that's the next part of it. And that gets down to very detail. Uh, in my book, I have probably 25 aspects for each character. There's quite a, quite a list of things that they and need to know. And then that informs the set designer, the costume designer. Well, no, 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 no. It's, uh, this, this is just things for the writer. Oh, okay. So, so way we're, back we're, early. That's way, that's way down the way down the road. So for the writer, you need to know every possible, at least 25 factors about each character. I mean, give character. me a couple that I may not think of. Like, Well, the, their factors are their age. The height, weight. You know, yeah. Their physicality, their education, their social economic background, their personal traits. They a stutter or are they a fast talker, a slow talker? They have uh, some kind of disability. Do they have siblings? Uh, do they, you know, parents are alive, parents are dead. What their career was. I mean, these are all these different factors in it. So the, it's just a laundry list of all the factors that make up, you know, any, any real person. Because you want your characters to be real. And then the next thing is you need to come up with a name. And the best thing to do is, okay, if your character <clears throat> is 65 years old, what you do is you go on the internet and you go back to birth year of you know 65 years ago and look up names what's the most popular name 65 years ago you know john or steve or S susan or nancy whatever it is and so you're not you using up. your own family's right. names or yeah, your you're, own name. you're also coming up names that are age appropriate for that person so every character that you come up with is say they're 30 years old okay let's go back 30 years old to birth names and put that in so these are little details. That's further along the process, but to give you an idea about characters. And then the next thing, which I have in my book, is list of character traits that each of your characters should have two or three or four of these. It could be, oh, one is a, a thinker, somebody that contemplates everything and has a time making decisions. You got another person that is just instantaneous. Everything is just, they just spontaneously do things. So all these different character traits. You could be a charitable person. You could be a hopeful person. You could be a selfish person or selfless person. And so these are all these character traits that I have in the book. And then also have cultural character traits like uh, are they a greedy person? Are they a selfless person? And, and then what you do is you mix and match these character traits. So you've got this structure first in very detailed of everything possibly can happen in each scene. And then you go into developing each one of your main characters. And you could have four, six, eight main characters. And you have the traits and physicality of each of these characters. And also, once you figure all that out, then you figure out what the characters' motivations are in this story, in this environment. What are they after? What do they want? They want love. They want money. They want peace and quiet. They want, maybe they want chaos. Uh, you know, what's their motivation in this story? So you have that. And then that would inform like who you leave or are looking at as an actor. Or yeah, that, that, that would help with you with that too. But that's yeah. first further down the road. There's sometimes a, I would say for 
beginning writers, it's it's a lot. It's helpful for them to visualize certain actors in certain roles to help them. But again, actors like to be in diverse roles. They don't like necessarily be typecast in one particular thing. But as a writer, if it can help you visualize or understand the physicality of the particular character uh, for first-time writers, it's a good thing to do. So tell us what it's like to pitch your story. You must have done that in your career, yeah. right? How does one get up the nerve to pitch some art that they've written? And how do you deal with rejection in this industry? And who survives and what gets put out mm -hmm. and why? I would love to hear your perspective on what gets made and what doesn't get made and what well, that's anything. A, There's 50 questions that, there. That's, so take that's on a lot. Any There's a lot yeah. to that. Uh, a lot well, to it's a few podcasts and, here. Yeah. yeah. So I would say that. But talk, talk to us about pitching your story and how you dealt with that. Pitching my story. And that's something also I teach in my book is how to pitch. There's uh, four, about four steps of pitching. There's the log line, which is one sentence to encapsulate what your story's about. So, uh, like an elevator pitch. Uh, no, it's even sh it's you know, ele elevator pitch is a whole thing I'll get to. Okay. This is one sentence to explain your story. Then the next thing is okay. It sums up your whole story. Sums up your whole story, or the most exciting, most interesting part of your story in one sentence. That's the, just to get somebody's spark of they identify. Go like, okay, this is a this is a western, and it's eighteen seventy, and you've got a guy that wants to get the U.S. back into the Civil War, and then you've got a, a marshal that wants to stop him. That's your one sentence. Then the next thing you need to do is come up with, well, this movie, uh, this movie is like this other movie. So it could be Dancing with Wolves meets Tombstone. Okay. To, that's your next thing that you pitch. And then the, ne the next step is that you come up with a paragraph. So you take your log line and then you expand it upon and you start talking about other characters and describing the scenes more. And that's a paragraph in, into your pitch. And then the next part would be, you need to come up with a synopsis, which is about a one to two pages. Less, that's about 500 words that it takes your outline of your story and in broad strokes, you give your first act, second act, and the third act. And that's your synopsis. And those are the, the, your tools that you take when you go to a meeting. Sometimes you have a meeting for five minutes. And sometimes you have a meeting for half an hour where there's back and forth with this potential producer who wants to buy your script or option your script and might be, you know, oh, what if we had this actor in it? Or what if we had this director? Or, well, we changed the location of this. And there's this discussion and the pitch. And then getting something sold doesn't mean that you're the most flexible person in the world. It's, that you are listening to the producer's ideas and see if they will work with the story. Some of them don't. And how you stand up for yourself has a lot to determine about it. Because so, they don't want somebody just to be a pushover. Well, what I didn't realize until yesterday when you and I were talking about this is that you write a story, let's mm -hmm. just say, you option it or you sell it, yeah. and they have every right to change it yeah, and bastardize right. it. That's right. And inflate it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that yeah. to me was shocking yeah. because no wonder the books and the movies don't match. That's I mean, right. obviously, even if the intent is to keep a story very true to the book, everything you said about the influence of how you receive that information mm -hmm. makes sense to me. 
the fact that someone else is ultimately taking that written word and putting it into a screenplay, another written word that then gets interpreted into the physical form. It's like, I get how it flows and it changes, but I didn't realize you were giving away your rights or, you know, yeah. selling your rights. Yeah, you so are. you're really trusting that someone's going to keep the story relatively close to the vest and yeah. not yeah. too far and, away. And that's the challenge of it because producers, it's a business it's about money. And because you're working in a collaborative art form, if I was a novelist, it's just myself and my editor working through this novel to get it finished versus a movie screenplay, which is producers get involved with their ideas. The director, she has her ideas about it. You have interpretations by the art directors and other people along the way. And actors have a lot of influence on it. Money, like they might change the location for money reasons or they might change the, the actor's from man to woman or woman to man, depending on the casting, that changes the story. A director might bring in another writer to boost up some characters that the original writer didn't think were important. And it goes on and on because, because it is a collaborative art form. When it's finished, for me, and I've talked to other screenwriters, is it's close. It's, you know, when you see the movie and go to the premiere, it's like, yeah, it's basically my idea. I probably feel the same as authors feel when their book is turned into a movie. It's sort of the same thing. It's sort of this, it's not exactly your original vision, but in, as anything else, as a writer, you appreciate that all these people put all this time, effort, and money to get the, getting it visualized and realized, and now the audience can watch it and enjoy it and interpret it. So you, you, you've accomplished that. Uh, but usually what happens by the time a writer has sold or optioned the story, they're working on something else. Unless they're contracted to do rewrites as it goes, but that doesn't really happen much. Usually they always bring in another writer because you want a different point of view sometimes than the original writer. So you usually by the time I've had things optioned, it's like I'm on to doing another movie script for somebody else. So you just go on with your career and you realize in your career that your point is to come up with clever and original stories and to sell them or option them, but to just move on to the next one. Well, you have a really varied background, and that's one of the reasons why I enjoy talking to you so much. And you have some physics and math in your background. And I'm going to take us to another place, which is about tips for telling our stories in person to each other. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take you to a psychological place, DC, okay. because you are a really good storyteller down to the level that yesterday I complimented you on your ability to give me directions in a car. Like you were really good at it. And there's obviously a method. There's something that you've practiced or rehearsed or perfected in your communication style that made me be able to hear it and relax and driving in a strange city mm -hmm. and have a pleasant experience. So your interaction with me was very interesting. And so you also tell really great stories, but there's a lot of us that don't tell great stories and we talk tangentially and we don't communicate well. Maybe we communicate negatively. What are some tips for telling a great story to each other or in our relationships? Well, I go back to my thought, uh, thought that not all of us are storytellers. Not all of us are writers. Uh, when you think as a writer and you live and breathe it and dream it, it's a 24-7 existence. You're thinking about words and structure and 
grammar and dialogue in your everyday, for me, in my everyday life. I look at it this way. When I'm telling a story, it's the story that I want to hear from my perspective of, oh, I want to tell a story that if somebody was telling a story to me, it's, it's the structure and the way that I want to hear it. So that's, I'm the first audience. I'm going, oh, this, I'm telling this, and this is pleasant, or the, whatever the structure is, that I would love to hear and experience. So that's the first thing when I'm thinking about when I tell stories, is that perspective. Well, how do we know what we want to hear? I mean, truly, I mean that sincerely. I think that's the most important thing is for more people to listen. The more you listen to others, the better you're going to be as a speaker and as a writer, because we all learn from each other on a day-to-day basis. And some are, people are excellent communicators and some are not. And you'll always learn from everyone you interact with uh, about listening. And that's the most important thing I learned as a very young person was always listen first and then talk versus always being the one to talk first and always having an opinion about things. And myself, I tendency to stay away from expressing my opinions unless it's based up on facts that I've known, I've collected in my life. So what's the difference between an opinion based on fact and an opinion based on lies? I would say from the listener's point of view, you can usually tell if somebody's just fabricating something or BSing somebody uh, versus a fact base that they are quoting other sources, they're quoting numbers, or they heard it, you know, they read an article, let's say they read an article in The Guardian about something, you know, like what's their sources has a lot to do with it. Like myself, it's like, yes, I like to talk about physics. However, I think I would be embarrassed to talk about physics in front of a physicist because sometimes I forget pieces of the facts. I will remember a lot of the facts, but because I'm not in it every day, I will go, okay, what is, there's something missing here, and I I don't recall what exactly what it is. And as a person that's careful about what you say, I have a tendency to correct myself when I'm talking about a subject matter I may know something about. Say, well, this is what I know of what I can remember or what I recall about that. Well, here's the problem, the rub with everything you just said. Mm -hmm. Facts change. True. And 50% of all memory has just been shown is inaccurate. Yes, I agree with that. And so it may be more than 50%. Mm -hmm. So, you know, despite us doing our best, anytime we try to go back and rely on facts and also rely on history, it's a slippery environment. It is. It really is a slippery slope. And in the end, some days because I'm doing a lot of research now for this podcast mm-hmm. in a variety of areas, I feel like at the end of the day, it's all edutainment, if you will. It's yeah. all entertainment, whether we read it, whether we visualize it in the video form, we hear it, we're taking in information and we're giving out information mm-hmm. with every breath and every you know drop of liquid. Now they've proven so many things about water. I mean, it's a flow. Yeah. And so telling our story, I think one of the questions that popped in my mind when you were talking about the storytelling was, do people want to hear anything happy anymore? 
or are they all just sensationalizing the negative? And can we make blockbusters that are inspirational and happy without violence, without the bad? And is PG the kiss of death? And how can we elevate so that this is aspirational and not shameful or a thing of the past? Yeah, I would love that we would have more inspirational stories and more epic journeys, movie experiences that are not necessarily about violence and inspired by that, but, you know, like Downton Abbey, that's inspirational story has no violence in it. So it's possible to do that. Like Mad Men, there was very little violence in that show. Every once in a while would be like a traffic accident or something, some kind of accident would happen. That's but it was, life. But it was unintentional. That's life. Exactly. Yeah. That, you know, accidents happen. So it is possible to do that. It is possible to have those kind of stories. But again, when producers are looking to buy something, they're looking for a particular audience. Without audiences, is it 18 to 25-year-old men? Or is it 25 to 45-year-old women? Or is it you know young people? I mean, it's it's about marketing. It's a business. And so they're looking at when they're buying stories and generally when you go to a producer, you're going to pitch them a story that they've done before a genre. They've done family entertainment before action adventure before it's an area they, they know very well. They've, they have successes and failures in that arena and that's what they're comfortable about purchasing and, and producing those stories. So the producers are not like actors. They're not looking to spread their wings and do a variety of things. Yes. They're, they're very much into whatever their sweet spot is because that's where they know they can make a living. So you might have producers who are very progressive and they love stories that are about overcoming adversity. And you've got other producers who want the biggest, hugest explosions and interstellar fighting and all, all kind of, bravado and all that and that's what they do so that's the thing about producers is finding the right producer to pitch your story to well what's appropriate for that particular and that's that takes a bit of time and effort to find that well tell us just the major genres of films or television or both are Mm -hmm. they the same or are they different on Uh, film and tv i think tv is a little bit different Uh, well tv is going through a great transition now because of instead of doing Episodical TV, which was a complete story from beginning to end in an hour. Now they do serials of it's a continuous story, constantly continuous story that seems to be never ending, you know, week after week, and they're all interconnected. Like Friends? You know, that Friends kind is of more a of a, yeah, it's more episodical in a sense of you're seeing a, a day in a life of them, but it's loosely a linear line of interconnection. Like Mad Men was pretty much a line. Uh, okay. we, you know, we saw a line, or you know, Game of Thrones. It's a line. You're seeing from season one to season eight. There's a line in connection of this story where it's going. So it comes down to that. So genres. We've got family entertainment, which be, can could be like Disney movies. It could be The Lion King or something like that. It could be an animated feature. It could be a children's movie about a boy and a horse or a boy and a dog, whatever, a girl and a dog. Those kind of family entertainment stuff, like Dora the Explorer, that's out right now. Um, that's family entertainment, but with some action to it. So it's more of a P-13 thing. The Star Wars trilogies, those are fantasy movies. 
they're action-based fantasy movies, but they're fantasy movies. Star Wars is a fantasy movie. Star Trek is based on science fiction. So it's our reality as we know it, but hundreds of years in the future based upon the technology of what physicists know today that these movie makers can postulate what technology will be in the future. So it's science, science fiction has led our science. Well, what I learned from you this morning was mm -hmm. that science fiction means that it's rooted in science. Yes. And the fictional part of it is just kind of the boxes and the technology that's featured at, the, at that moment, mm -hmm. what they're projecting the future will be. But the science isn't in question. Yeah. It's just... Based on theories that are out there. Uh, some proven, some not proven, but th theories in that way, uh, on, based on physics and chemistry, of things that you know are possible to do, theoretically. And then in some ways, uh, it's been proven experimentally that these things are possible. However, they may be 10 or 20 years from actually happening. And so with science fiction, you can show it actually happening, like terraforming a, a dead planet or whatever you want to call it, or sp space travel bending time and space in a warp drive that's based on Einstein and very other physicists about explaining how space-time works. Okay, you see, I just had a crazy thought. Mm -hmm. Why can we show it what it would look like in the future but not experience it? How can we do this? It's all obviously projection, mm -hmm. but why can I watch that Star Trek hologram what's that called the transporter yeah the transporter said? right uh, how can i watch that and somebody made it somewhere <coughs> right or they yeah a, a they, representation it, of yes, it yes you know because you're using camera tricks it's all about tech technology of cinematography and art direction on a set as an example the transporter you have the transporter room with the pads that everybody stands on and you have five people standing there, right? And the camera is fixed. Okay, then you cut, cut, you know, cut and stop the camera rolling. All the five people leave, and then you have an empty room with, you know, you have the pads empty with nobody there. And so the visual effects artists, what they do is they digitize the imagery of those people uh, deconstructing into molecules, so visually, so you can see it. So they just put the two together and it creates the visual representation of somebody being transported. Yeah, it's not that complicated in visual effects they can do. They can create, like, uh, like in um, Star Wars, they have lasers and they have, you know, they have the, the swords, right, that have lightsabers that have that. Okay, that's all done in post-production. The, the real, in real life, the lightsabers or they got a handle and then they have this like a metal stick right so they know what the end of the saber is but later on in post-production they add the little light emitting part of it as a post-production thing so that's what happens it's they're adding layers and visual imagery of things that don't really exist through camera tricks and that's the fun thing and that's what a lot of these movies, you know, Marvel movies are adding layers upon layers. A lot of sci-fi movies are filmed mostly inside blank soundstages, just a giant room, and the, it's, everything's painted green, 
and all the actors are doing their acting, they're hanging from wires and all this other stuff. And then the post-production people, they get rid of all the wires and they replace the green with could be outer space. It could be a spaceship. It could be anything because those are the artists. They're creating these other worlds, other imagery and replacing all that green with this imagery that they create. So that's the magic of the movies. That's just crazy. So let's bring it back to the story. If someone thinks that they have a story to tell and they want to get started, how far along should they be before they see you or call you or look you up? I would say that for beginning screenwriters, I would suggest them go out and get some books and, and read books on the theory of screenwriting first. Because my, my book is more of a practical workbook. We have lessons that every week or, or you know, that you so go through. So get some book knowledge. Yeah. And then looking at those books, start coming up with your outline. What's your beginning, middle, and end of your story in broad strokes? And broad strokes about your care, who your characters are and what they're all about. And then when my book is available, which is not available yet, but it'll be available shortly, they can buy my book and go through the lessons. And then I'm also going to be doing live teaching of my book. Yeah, and you can certainly buy the book and just do the lessons and then you're fine. Uh, but I believe in the interaction of the other students and myself helping that person talk about and visualize their stories. So there's like group participation yes. things in your um, Yeah, it's live very stuff. important. I mean, yeah, there's online classes available for many, like many subject matters, but that's only a primer. That's only gives you the basics. You need to have, to write about human beings, you need to talk with other human beings and other writers. And when you're in a workshop situation, you get feedback. And when you talk to beginning screenwriters, or actually when you talk to novelists, a lot of even novelists that I know have actually still have book groups that they still have other writers read their work. And it helps get out of your head and your isolationness by dealing with other people who are also motivated to tell their stories. And you'll learn from those other students about how and how to do it for yourself. Well, that's great. Any parting words you want to say about telling a story? I mean, I wonder why we communicate so negatively. Like, how can we turn words into positive interactions? Do you ever find that negative communication just is everywhere and you want to impact the conversation to a positive story? Yeah, I think it, really, it starts with yourself. It starts with your attitude that you have to ignore or enhance to have a positive attitude in projecting positive words to others. And when you're reading something else, like what's the, what could be the positive spin on this? And you're not covering up anything, but you're looking at like, there's two ways to look at anything, positive or negative. And it's better for human beings to live in a positive environment and have people around you have a positive attitude uh, about what, what you're doing and all that. Because when you dwell on the negative, it's just going to, it just stops you from fulfilling your life and from doing anything. So to be a good writer, you have to be a positive person. You can have characters that are very negative, and that's way for, sometimes a way for you to express your negative side, your dark side, but you also have to have a positive influence in your stories too. 
Well, one of the things I've been practicing, and you've mentioned it here today, is trying to look at things objectively. So mm -hmm. if I have a negative interaction, I look at it as a third person singular and I say, wow, I didn't enjoy that. That was really negative. And I, I depersonalize it. I first of all, don't even think about the other person. Sometimes to the extent that I might say, oh, I guess you're having a really bad day. And I had this situation with my mailman at my place. Mm. He was putting mail in my box and I walked by and I said, hello. And he said, I don't know you. And I was like, that is such a weird answer yeah. to saying hello. Yeah. And you're putting my mail in my box. And I was like, what can I take away from that? Like the, the negativity. And I was like, why would a mailman say, I don't know you? Yeah. What an interesting. So just taking that depersonalization and saying, hmm, what did he mean by that? Because it certainly wasn't about me at all right yeah, the, and so right. i didn't need yeah. to take in the negativity right so i chose to tell it tell myself a different story about the interaction mm -hmm. which is kind of what you were just saying about yeah. not going to the negative it's staying in the positive or neutral at the very best yeah and leaving it at that yeah don't take things personally i mean at the very first moment you're going to take things personally but when you step back and look at the situation like oh there's something wrong from that person's point of view, it could have nothing to do with you. Yeah. They had a bad day or they're having a bad week or they maybe they hate their job or their life or something like that. And they're projecting that. Right. But it hurt initially. It, it I mean, it was like a sting was it thrown does. at me, a little dart. But that's life. And I life was like, full of, uh, dude, yeah. you're, you're delivering my mail. Why would you say that to me in such a negative way? But the point was it hurt, but mm -hmm. I moved on and then I popped out of that situation like you were saying, look at the story objectively. It's nothing but a story yeah. and it doesn't have to stay there and it doesn't have to stay in that negative place. And I thought, wow, story is everything. Mm -hmm. And kind of at your position as a screenwriter and a writer, you're uh, the top dog because you're like doing this for your love is telling mm -hmm. stories, telling listening stories. to people and telling stories. And doesn't matter what kind of field you're in everybody tells stories and they're in our structure is a beginning middle of an end so even if you're writing an email to somebody you should have a structure to it and back in the day when we were taught how to write letters and write memos it's the same thing it's there's there's a beginning part of the letter and there's a the conclusion there's like hi introduction introduction this is my summary the, in the second part was all the details and the third part is the conclusion or the asking for action. Amen. That. So you know we what? Should, We're going we to need text writing classes. Yes. That's what they need yeah. to teach in school so, right yeah. now. DC is text writing. My, my thing about text, I usually just ask questions and every line, you know, there's a question, send it, waiting for, and, you know, answering and asking questions and not really making statements per se, but just making like short answers, one sentence answers and one sentence questions. Well, I have one friend that only does emojis. They uh -huh. won't say anything else, and I won't communicate that way because I don't know what the hell those things mean. I like emojis, and I'm I I like the five I, that I use. I'm starting to you know, use more of them. I think they're fun. Dude, did you know there's an international committee on emojis and it has to go through a massive process? Yeah. International, like... That makes sense. It's becoming the it's new... It's huge. It's now becoming the new international language. It is the replace, international language. It's going to replace English. It's going to be just everybody in the world will just speak emojis. We're going back to hieroglyphics. <laughs> yes, we are. 
Yeah. Because it's international. Absolutely. It's an expression of, a lot of it's facial expressions or hand expressions. Yeah. And that's, I think, I think it's fantastic. Do you really? Yeah. Okay, they need to teach emoji at school too. <laughs> they do. They no, really do. This is not a joke. No, and I we know, need but... to teach it to our elders because we need to learn how to communicate because yeah. words are going away. Especially their elders trying to understand what their uh, teenage grandchildren are sending the messages. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> oh, exactly. I had a, f- a friend in New York that she was dating this guy and he would only communicate in emojis. And this is years ago, so there wasn't very yeah. many emojis, but uh-huh. actually it was sim- simpler back then. Right. But never wrote a written word in the entire relationship hmm. except emojis. That's, and it was that was an outlier back yeah, then. But outlier. it's not. This is our new hieroglyphics. Yeah, it is. It really is. Crazy. I, I don't know how that's going to affect storytelling. Oh, that's a whole nother podcast, yes, dude. That's Jeez, right. that's a great question. Oh, what if we made a movie with just emojis? There was an emoji movie. Oh. I didn't see it, but I mean, there was. Okay, well, so, and there's like, like a sequel the... came out on that already. So oh, I have not seen either one of those. Get with the times, Elizabeth. <laughs> so, yeah, but I think how will emojis change storytelling? That's, that's my probably my next book. Well, the very first <laughs> thing I feel like is we need to teach emojis because just putting emojis out there when they have no meaning Mm -hmm. to someone doesn't make me use them or communicate with them if i've never seen an eggplant i'm not going to pick the eggplant (laughs) vegetable ever if i don't know what the eggplant is i'm serious or what if i i said you (laughs) Uh, i'm not going to explain what it means I sent you an emoji last night that yeah. could have meant I love you. I don't know. I think yeah. it probably did, but it was the one I wanted to send you. Yeah. Not because I love you in a romantic no, way, but because I wanted that picture. But because right. I've never been educated what it mm-hmm. means, I'm glad it was you, one of my dear friends. Mm-hmm. Because at some point, someone will ascribe a meaning to that and right. they'll interpret it right. in a way that I didn't mean because I, I was I never educated. It and it's and it's because I know our relationship. I took it as, you know, like a kiss goodnight. Like we're just nice and I sweet kiss, and yeah. just a friends and because we care a lot about each other. And so, yeah, I took it as your intention. But the thought crossed my mind when I hit send. I was like, WTF, I hope I didn't just cross a line here, right. you know, because it's amorphous at this point but yes. that's another whole topic we could yes. do our own movie on with emojis yeah. except i really don't have the patience for them right now like i uh i'm just not ready to go there but thank you we got to sign off okay thank you so much dc You're it's just well. been I'm very happy to do this and i'll do it again been fantastic to have you here i'd love to have you back and head on over to notoldyetglobal.com. We appreciate you being here. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button and feel free to subscribe. And we'll catch you next time. Thanks, DC. You're welcome, Elizabeth. Bye.